You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. For, for those of you who haven't um, been here, it's a series on um, kind of helping one another. And so we're trying to think from the perspective of helping others outside of us. So the first class, I kind of just gave a general kind of overview on what it takes to be someone who is bent towards helping others. And I do, I just want to reemphasize, because we're talking about marriage, like if you're married, of course, you're going to think some about your own marriage, and that would be normal and natural. I do want us to think a little bit, though, about helping others, and we're going to spend some time with Q&A doing that. But I, I hope you maintain some of that focus, because I said this in the first class, as a counselor, I've had to learn how to care for others. And um, I saw even in counseling how much I wanted it to be about me early in counseling, and I had to work to get outside of myself. Now, you know, it says in Proverbs, he who refreshes others with himself be refreshed. I see more and more because I had to grow into it, the beauty of caring for others well. So I do want us to maintain some of that focus that we're thinking about how do we help others outside of us in distressing marriages. What I'm going to do today is kind of give you a big overview thought on thinking about approaching marriage in general, and then an overview thought on husbands, and an overview thought on wives, and then we're, I'm going to leave at least 15 minutes where we're just going to do Q&A. So if there's no questions, it'll be a shorter class. If there's questions, we'll dialogue about them, okay? Um, you should have a handout. If you don't, they're on where you um, came in. I have a passage there from Matthew 19, and it's about marriage. It starts out this way. Um, The Pharisees come to Jesus, and they're trying to trap him. And they say, can a man get divorced for any reason? In that day, there was a myriad of reasons why men could divorce women. Women did not have the authority to divorce. Um, In fact, burning a meal was a reason for divorce. And with all their reasons, they were making a mockery of marriage. So they come trying to trap Jesus and really pull Jesus toward their side to kind of honor their view that marriage is too difficult. We need a lot of avenues out of marriage. And so Jesus says back to them, haven't you read the scriptures? Now, this would be like um, Frank Thielman, who teaches at Beeson, like asking him if he had read the scriptures. Okay. They were students of the scriptures. So Jesus is comment back is not necessarily kind. He's like, y'all, you're students of the scriptures. Haven't you read them? And he says this, for this reason, a man leaves his mother and father and cleaves to his, and leaves his mother and father and creates a space where he cleaves to his wife and the two become one. And really what Jesus is saying is, y'all, marriage is a good thing. It's made for togetherness. They are overwhelmed at the difficulty of marriage and running away from it. And Jesus calls them back and says, marriage is a really good thing. It's made for oneness. So they don't like his answer. And they say, well, then why did Moses permit um, people to get divorced? And Jesus' response, he ups his kind of picking a fight with them. And he says, it was because of your hard-hearted wickedness. He goes right after their hearts. And he's essentially what I want us to hear is that hard-heartedness. Their issue was not that they should be finding more reasons for marriage. The issue is that they should have been dealing with their hard-heartedness, and that would have helped them to experience togetherness. But Jesus says it was because of your hard-hearted wickedness. And then he says this. He says, unless a man's been unfaithful, he really ought to 
kind of stick with his wife. All right? Unless there's been unfaithfulness, a man and woman should stick together. And, um, and then at this point, the disciples pipe in. He'd been talking with the Pharisees, and now his disciples pipe in, and they say, um, then Jesus, it's better not to get married. I mean, if you've got to stick together, if there's really only a, this reason that you can get divorced, and you've got to stick together, then they're like, why get married? And Jesus says, only the wise can accept this statement. In one translation, only those whom God helps. All right. Now, what Jesus is not saying is, you're right, guys, it it's, it's, would be better not to be married, just stay single. He's saying, you're right. If you've got to stick together through thick and thin, it's really hard. And only those who are participating with God, only those whom God helps, can really lean into the difficulty of marriage and grow togetherness. So I have on your handout, I have just three kind of big themes from the text. From the beginning, God designed marriage for oneness. Hard-heartedness sabotaged what God intends. And only those whom God helps can accept the difficulty of marriage and move toward common ground. One of the things when I teach this in a larger setting, one of the things I want to emphasize through this passage is that Jesus is affirming that marriage is hard. And I think in our Christian communities, oftentimes because we idolize marriage a little bit too much, people can't talk about the difficulty of marriage. And if they do, people around them freak out and send them books or don't talk to them or I don't know, whatever happens, right? I was recently teaching in a church that I've taught in for over 20 years, and it was to two uh, small groups of young couples. And I asked them... um, how many of them feel permission to talk about their marriage being hard? They'd only been married a couple years. And out of, I think there was about uh, 14 couples, and only one couple didn't raise their hand. So the, all the other couples felt comfortable talking about um, that their marriage can be hard. And I said, I've taught this passage in this church 20 years ago, and nobody would have raised their hand. Everyone would have felt it was too hard to talk about their marriage being difficult. And I said, you have really benefited. I know that church well, and they have worked to create a community where grace and truth are mirrored together. Grace gives us the permission to admit how bad we are. Truth gives us something to keep aiming towards so that we can continue to grow. They balance each other out. But oftentimes we hold up the truth without allowing there to be a community of grace where people can richly struggle meaningfully toward the truth we all believe. All right? And so I want us to comfortably be able to think that marriage is hard. Now, what, how that matters when you're trying to help someone in a marriage is when they talk about their marriage being hard, can you just listen and grieve with them without feeling like you have to make it better? Because oftentimes what makes marriage hard is that we don't think it should be hard. So now what's hard is two times harder because we're beating ourselves up for it being hard. So one just simple key thing you would be thinking about if you're going to help someone in a distressing marriage is to be able to lament with them, to grieve with them, to groan with them that their marriage is difficult and that there's not a simple answer to grow togetherness. Okay. So we want to accept that marriage is hard. We want to uh, accept that hard-heartedness is what sabotages a good marriage. At the bottom of the first page, I have what is hard-heartedness? And I have a couple answers. It's resisting God's call to redemptive love while kind of following your flesh. When it says in Ephesians 
that one of the best pictures for Christ's love for the church is a love between a husband and a wife. Here's what I think that means. If, if you're married, you know this, right? I have sinned against my wife more than anyone in her life. She has sinned against me more than anyone in my life. We have richly sinned against each other. And you know what? After 29 and a half years, I love her more, not less. All right? That is redemptive love. That I continue to move toward her and want good for her, even though at times she can hurt me. Vice versa. She can love me and continue to move towards me, even though at times I can hurt her. I think my wife growing up, if you would have asked her what type of guy she wanted to marry, she would have said someone who can like sing and dance and tell good jokes. And I'm the opposite of that. And I kind of watched her sink in our marriage and then I watched her come back alive where she can love me even though I'm not the ultimate picture of what she would most deeply desire in a marriage. Okay? So, hard-heartedness sabotage what good, what God intends in marriage. And then only those whom God helps can accept the difficulty of marriage and move towards common ground. All right? Um, I want you to think about hard-heartedness as a key... Um, I mean, I'm sorry, redemptive love as a picture of hard-heartedness. Unforgiveness. It's the same thing. In marriage, your ability to forgive oftentimes will determine the life and health of your marriage. All right? There were many times as I was growing into redemptive love that I wanted to run away and withhold forgiveness from my wife. And as I was running away, I ran into somebody. His name was Jesus. And I felt him saying to me, um, how much have you sinned against me? And I would be like, well, I really can't keep track of that, Jesus. And he would be like, how, how often have I forgiven you? And my relationship with him is what helped me move back into my marriage, okay? And give forgiveness. The more I was recognizing that I wasn't loving my wife the way I should and Jesus was forgiving me, the more I was able to give her forgiveness, Okay? I also have hard-heartedness as a refusal to learn from your spouse. In general, we all have certain personalities and we learn to make our life work based on our personalities. And our personalities fundamentally don't, don't change over the course of our life. This is um, John Gottman. He's done more research than anyone on marriage and here's what he's found. 75% of the things couples disagree about at the beginning of their marriage stay alive through the life of their marriage. Okay? We don't fundamentally change our personalities. So, I'm a doer. I like activity. I like accomplishment. All right? And what I learned as a young child was how to make that all work for me. So, I developed this super high-pressured, focused, work hard, achieve athletically and academically philosophy. And when I got married, when we were in difficulty, what do you think I wanted to do? Work harder. Push through. Solve the problem. My wife grew up, she had dyslexia, went to a special school for a number of years on the special school bus with all the special people. And she learned to deal with the difficulty of life by having fun. And kind of, if it's difficult, go the other way and exist over here, okay? So when we were in difficulty, I wanted to push through and solve it. And she was like, let's just go have some fun. We're not going to solve this quickly, all right? So what we had to both do to grow more love was surrender what we trusted most. That's called idolatry. Like marriage will expose your idolatry. Hard-heartedness is I want to keep trusting the things that I've always trusted 
to make my marriage good. Faith is surrendering some of that idolatry and developing unforgiveness, redemptive love. All right? So I had to keep trusting that the person I married, who I'm supposed to stay married to, was a gift from God to help expose the things I trusted. I had to be willing to learn from my wife. So an example I'll, I'll often give, we homeschooled for a while and then we sent our, all our kids to Edgewood Elementary, fifth, third, and first grade. And um, my third grader, uh, my middle, is like super passionate and she doesn't like like busy work and waiting in line and all that kind of stuff. So homeschool fit her personality a little better. And at the end of her third grade year, the teacher said with three weeks to go, we're not going to introduce any new material. We're just going to do busy work. So she came home from school that day like fit to be tied. Like, why do I got to go to school my last three weeks when we're not going to learn anything new? And she, and she had been sinking down all year because the atmosphere was so different than what she had been used to in school. Now, if I was still believing my philosophy that I came into marriage with, we'd been married about nine years, I would have said, over my dead body, is um, she going to check out these last three weeks? I'm going to push her and show her how to lean in and become someone who accomplishes stuff because she knows how to work hard and push through. My wife thought, hey, what if I just sign her out for lunch the last three Wednesdays of the year to help her kind of endure? What I said in that moment was, "Hun, that's a really good idea. Because I'd been willing to learn from my wife for the nine years prior to that. And I was able to come alongside and we made a good decision to help her. But I had been willing to sovereignly trust that this crazy woman was crazy for a good reason to help me uh, let go a little bit, okay? The last point about hard-heartedness, justified self-centeredness. That's Matthew 7. I look at the person next to me, my brother, and I see a big old log in their eye, and all that's in my eye is a splinter. I justify what I'm doing based on their sin. And the scriptures say to reverse that, that we're actually, our sin supposed to be the bigger deal. But what happens in marriage because of these differences? Like I thought, I'm having to work more and I'm having to work harder to stay on top of things because you're so darn lazy and checked out. And she was like, you're making it all so difficult, i got to check out more. Okay? Justified self-centeredness. All right? So I've really said a lot, but I want to make it in two, diff- two big things. Marriage is hard. Okay? And part of the difficulty is it exposes what we trust. And we're supposed to be learning and growing and becoming different. It's supposed to be a redemptive narrative where part of the joy we have in marriage is how we're changing and growing as a person and able to love that person who's different from us. Okay? They would be the two big things. Now I'm going to talk about men and women and I'll make it really simple so that women we can just dialogue. All right? The New Testament commands to the men and women are really different. All right? And I think part of what they're based on is to speak to these the big longings in men and women. After Adam and Eve were created, God said, rule and subdue and be fruitful and multiply. He said, Adam and Eve, you're going to want to make a difference in the world. Rule and subdue. Go out and do that. Bring order and shape and beauty to your world. Okay? And then he said, be fruitful and multiply. Have children, create families and clans and tribes. You're social people. You're meaning-seeking people. You want to make a difference in the world. And you're social people. You want to be connected. These are the two big longings. Okay? When I'm meeting with a couple, all right, and, and let's say they've been married at least over 10 years and I ask them how they're doing, the husband will usually look at his wife. 
for her to say how they're doing. All right? Because she cares about the marriage more and wants more from the marriage, i.e., she's made to be fruitful and multiply. He's more made to rule and subdue. Oftentimes, when a husband talks about how they're doing, he doesn't talk about whether they're connected. He talks about how he's doing and if he's making his wife happy or not. Okay? When Adam was cursed, after God said, be rule and subdue and be fruitful and multiply, Adam and Eve sinned. Okay? And then God cursed them. He disciplined them. He said, Adam... You're going to want to make a difference in the world, so I'm going to frustrate that. Every weed you pull, there'll be two more. By the thorns and thistles of life, you'll have impact. Adam, you'll never be able to have the impact you want without struggle, without futility. Okay? And wife, your desire will be for your husband, but he'll rule over you. You'll want to be connected to him, but he'll be free to choose whether or not he wants to be in relationship with you. Okay? So these two big things going on underneath, I believe, are largely what the New Testament commands kind of help us aim against. So if a man wants to have impact on his wife and he doesn't like the futility of it, all right, that it's difficult, that it requires struggle, what does he need to be reminded of? To treat his wife with understanding, to sacrifice for his wife the way Christ did for the church, and to love his wife and not be embittered to her. Does that make sense? Like the three big commands are all getting at the heart of, husband, what's going to be crazy for you is you're going to have to keep sacrificing and treating this wife with understanding as long as you're together. That verse I quoted, keep treating your wife with understanding as you live together, it's a continuing action sentence. Like I thought after three or four years that I was going to move on to something else, that I was going to like learn to, uh, we were going to learn to have something different than me having to keep treating my wife with understanding. So I'll give you a picture. This is now, I don't know how many years into our marriage, all right? And um, one of our daughters is coming home from college with a boyfriend, first boyfriend brought home, okay? We get a text before they get there in the car that he's thrown up twice on the way, okay? (laughs) And so they get there and we meet for, you know, like an hour just catching up, getting to know him, ask questions, all right? And I think my wife is processing that this guy's kind of relationally insecure, and if my daughter is dating this guy, then she's probably relationally insecure, and we've made a huge mess of things, okay? So after we talk for about an hour, we go into the back room and to, for like a bathroom break, and she's livid. And she's like, I can't believe this, and blah, blah, blah. Now, most of our marriage would have been like, hon, you've got to calm down. You can't go back out, and you're just going to ruin things, all right? So what I did was I treated her with understanding, and I was like, hon, that really makes sense. It didn't make sense to me, okay? But I knew better that a lot of what she was feeling was never going to make sense to me, and I had to treat her with understanding. So I just kept listening and saying, I really, wow, that makes sense. Yeah, that, yeah, 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 yeah. She complained for 20 minutes, and then she goes, okay, I'm ready to go back. Like, all she had to do was, I just need to help her carry some of that. She was going to love our daughter. She needed help carrying it. That's a picture of treating with understanding. You'll see there I have those passages that I've quoted, the three major passages, but I have one other in there. It's under the calling of a husband on page two. Um, I have another passage. What is desired in a man is steadfast love. Now think about futility. If a man's curse is futility, if every weed he pulls, there'll be two more. Who of you wants to stay at something you're never going to be great at? Who wants to stay at something you're never going to be great at? Okay. So when it says, what is desired in a man is steadfast love, this is what a husband has to grow into. 
I can remember in the significantly difficult years of our marriage, I can remember saying this to my wife. Honey, I have no idea how we're going to get to a different place. I have no idea how this tension is going to go away. All I know is I'm not going anywhere until we're at a different place. That's steadfast love. Okay? All right. I define the calling of a husband this way. Enduring through times of tension helps a husband grow a storehouse of inner character, the fruits of the Spirit, that he can grow in lavishing on his wife. What the Scriptures teach is that we can change from the inside. If we change from the inside, we have more love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, and self-control. The way most guys are raised when it comes to intimate relationship, what they have is withdrawal, frustration, fear, not those other characteristics. And I believe as you practice and grow and learn as a believing husband, which means you're looking to the Lord and Christian community to nourish you and help you grow on the inside, you have more and more to give your wife of inner character. Okay, So I say, enduring through times of tension helps the husband grow that inner character. And then I say, a godly man has some peace with utility and knows the way to deal with it is not to become cautious and protective, but to love extravagantly like God. So let me just make it simple. If we're talking to a man in a distressing marriage, part of what he's going to be distressed at is he doesn't feel like his wife can say, well done. He doesn't feel like his wife thinks he's a good man. He doesn't feel like he knows how to stay in there and keep caring for her. In general, okay? All right, let's talk about wives for a second and then we'll just do Q&A. The calling of a wife. On, winsome, awe-inspired cooperation. So if a wife is wanting to be more connected and her desire is going to be for her husband but who will love her, she'll never be able to make her husband do what he wants her to do, then she's going to have to grow this ability to keep relating in the midst of pain. The woman's curse was there will be pain in bringing forth children. Your desire will be for your husband but who will love you. What's hard for a woman is to keep staying in relationship that's difficult, to keep being supportive in relationship that's difficult. Like I watched my wife sink in our marriage, okay, because of what I was like, and then I watched her slowly come back to life where she could participate with me and love me even though she knew that she was never going to get exactly all that she wanted, okay? Larry Crabb says the, the shape of a woman's soul and a man's soul are similar to the way they have sex. What I just talked about in a man that he needs to stay erect and tender, okay? And what a woman has to learn how to do is warmly surround, okay? To give birth to something. What's hard for a woman in the vulnerability of a marriage is to stay warm and supportive, all right? So I have several passages to the wife there, all right? Essentially, what it deals with is this differential where a woman feels more vulnerable. She wants something a little bit different than the husband wants out of the marriage. So the passages to the wife are, your godly lives will speak louder to them than any words. A woman is usually more comfortable with uh, conversation and more comfortable with strong emotional content. So oftentimes she depends on her words to get her husband going. And what the Lord is saying, and he's, he's not saying don't speak. He's saying, remember, it takes a long time and oftentimes the way you're loving your husband will speak to him more than just your words. Don't depend on your words, okay? It also says to the wife, you're a daughter of Sarah when you do what is right without fear of what your husbands might do. Because of this vulnerability, 
women tend to be more afraid about where the marriage is going and about the future, okay? Again, by way of illustration, we were at a, um, a 25th wedding anniversary dinner for uh, friends of ours. And so we were meeting some people that we didn't know because they had friends from like the wedding come in and everything. And so we meet this couple and we have three teenage girls at this point. I can't remember how old they were. And so we say we have three teenage girls and the wife, who I think had younger children, said, oh my gosh, what is that like? And I thought, here's going to be an opportunity for my wife to talk about how afraid she is. And she said, they're really good kids. And I was like, what did she say? And I was like, who is this woman here? It was an opportunity to indulge her fear of the future, okay? And then talk anxiously about how, like, they're good kids, but we're really worried about this, 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 and this, okay? So to kind of stay supportive, warm in a relationship, that's hard for a woman, okay? And I want to remind you, the New Testament commands to the husband and wife, they were the things we needed to keep being reminded of that we were never going to do great. They were the things that we needed to keep being reminded of that we were never going to do great. All right? Um, all right. I think I'll stop there. And I want to just open it up to question and answer. We have a good 15 minutes. All right? So I know that was a lot of content. But hopefully we have a little groundedness on the marriage and then men and women. All right. Any questions? Anybody? One thing that you said before is, you know, when you get married, you say you're never going to change them. You're never, and like uh-huh. you said, you're, you know, you'll always have the same fight. But then yeah. again, you speak about changing and yeah. growing yeah. together yeah. towards Christ. Yeah. There is going to be change. Yeah. Yes. A lot of change. Yes. Yes. Each of you and both of you together. Yeah. That's a great point. We don't fundamentally change each other's personalities. But the change we can experience is a growth in faith, hope, and love, or the fruits of the Spirit. Like, I, I early in our marriage, I had my every three-week blow-up at how stuff was all over the house, you know? I don't have that blow-up anymore. Right? And my wife transferred some of that to a couple of our children, and I'm not even resentful about it. All right? That's because I've learned the good points of my wife that our girls have also benefited from, and I'm just more loving. That's the change. Yeah. And that's where you need to, as a couple, be able to celebrate that change, too, to see little ways you're changing. Yeah. Um, you said when you met the group um, that they said that they're able to share the hardness of their marriage uh-huh. more openly. And I've had three close friends that have gotten divorced, and by the time they actually come out and talk about it, they're done. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. How do you create an opportunity or be the friend that someone can come to you prior to the point where... It is just, it is over. I mean, there is, yeah. it is really, in their mind, it was like saying it out loud was the end. Yeah, yeah. And let me say back to your question. You, I talked about kind of being a community where people feel kind of safer talking about their difficulty in marriage. And so how do you be a friend where you kind of create that community that would help someone come to you in need before they get to a place where they just want to give up? Okay. I'll say two things. Some couples are going to get there regardless of how good a friend you are. I just sometimes we can't overcome people's selfishness and choices. Okay. I think the thing you can do most is be a friend who, and I don't mean like where you go out talking about your issues with everyone, but you're a friend who takes chances to kind of start some of that conversation. Where maybe you ask them a question that's going to uncover something that's going on in their marriage that they don't want to talk about and you have to have the faith to see how they're going to respond. 
Okay, it might be you because a lot of times no one's talking about it. So you might have to take the step of talking about some of your difficulty. And if a friend walks away or gives you a quick answer, say, I I really need you to listen. I need you to help me with this. I I don't want to be fixed. I want you to maybe give me some feedback, but pray for me and care for me. So there's ways, I think, individually with the friends around you, you can begin to create some of that community. But it's not going to happen without faith. Like no matter what, our communities tend to move away from that kind of honesty and truth. So it takes faith to grow that. Yeah. All right, anybody else? Any? Kelly's point about that, what you just brought up, I was just going to reiterate a little bit what you're saying, that yeah. just assume, because I grew up in a generation where nobody talked Talk. about their problems. Yeah. And so um, two things. One, I have a daughter-in-law who it said her first year of marriage, she just happened to say, it was really hard. And I thought, that's my son you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, yeah. surprised yeah. amazed that she had the willingness to yeah. say that to her mother-in-law. Yeah. I, I immediately saw, wow, a lot has changed in 30 years. Mm. Mm. But, um, but what Kelly was talking about is, uh, I think as soon as I learned mm-hmm. what this next generation has already learned, to just mm-hmm. be more open and vulnerable and honest mm-hmm. about where I am, not like being emotionally vomiting on people, but just... Just being willing to say, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of having a hard time with this yeah. guy or something, or just things that I'm struggling with. It just taking off that mask allows other people, my friends, to just be honest. And yeah, learn. yeah, yeah. I'm. It's amazing. I'm having to shift how I'm thinking about my scheduling because I have so many young couples now that just want to do maintenance counseling. Like in their culture, they're going to come once a quarter, like they do premarital, and then they come once a quarter, and they want to just keep doing that. And I just think the generation is so different. There's good and bad in that because sometimes people are vomiting too much. And, you know, we always throw out the baby with the bathwater. But some of that swing is very biblical and Christ-centered. You talked about, and given that example of a church for 20 20 years has changed, and you suggested that there's some things the church has done intentionally. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, do you recall what any of those were? Do you recall any of those? You might give some insight. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, there are a couple things. If the question is a church that really kind of grows a community that I'm going to say kind of fosters pastoral care among its members, where members can one another one the way we're talking about, what can be done? I think, first of all, it started at the top down. That, that pastor really meets too much with people, but meets with his, his schedule is filled up with working with a lot of leaders and not just like elders or small group leaders, but men and women who are actually just kind of leading in the church by their character, okay? Uh, I think the first thing is there ha- it has to be moving from up or down, where there has to be some discipleship from the leadership, and the leadership has to be honest about their own struggles. So it's creating both visually and kinesthetically what we're seeing and what we're feeling is more honesty about how a relationship works, all right? And then they've also kind of done a kind of a large-scale discipleship program that kind of teaches people how to do what I was saying, where they initiate more honest conversation and, and learn better how to carry people's pain without fixing it. So kind of they would be the two big things, um, leadership top-down. And then really, in, a, in Ephesians, it says that pastors are to equip people to do the work of ministry. Too often, pastors get caught up in doing the ministry. So in my pastoral counseling, when I teach at Beeson, a section of the course is just you, you men and women are community builders, and you've got to think about how to foster and build a community that does pastoral care and counseling. So.
Good question. Yeah. Um, so if you have a friend that might be struggling in their marriage, um, and I'm going to bring up the hard-heartedness. So if you see them struggle and they're sharing some of that with you uh-huh. and you can see that it's because of their hard-heartedness, what uh-huh. is the way to love them, show them grace, but graciously say it's probably because you're hard-heartedness. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, let me say this. I think the challenge will be if the question is, because hard-heartedness is a core marriage problem and someone's talking about the difficulty in their marriage and you see how their hard-heartedness is impacting them, how do you talk with them? I would use Galatians 6 as my guide, okay? And it says this, If anyone among you is caught in any trespass or overtaken by sin, we, we don't believe this in America... We tend to believe that we end up in trouble because we choose it and because we want it. I don't think we believe that we get deceived and bullied into things we don't want to do. All right? Romans 7, Paul says, the things I ought to do, I don't do. The things I do, do, I shouldn't do. And then he says, and he doesn't sound like a good American, it wasn't really me, it was sin in me. So the first thing is to believe for that person that they're caught in a trap that they don't see. All right? So, and it says you talk to them humbly and gently. And then it talks, bear one another's burdens, all right? Oftentimes, I talked about how in our personalities, we choose ways to make our life work. That's what makes our hard-heartedness. There was a reason in the pain of my life, I chose organization, discipline. I was bent that way anyway, but I chose it with more force because some of the pain in my life. There were burdens under that hard-heartedness. So I think you may have to be willing to carry their burden and to listen to some of their struggle before you point out that hard-heartedness, okay? And that's what's so hard because you see them really hurting and you say, if you could just see this, it would be all different. So here, I'm just going to point it out to you. And then, this is Larry Crabb, he says, quick advice feels like rejection, all right? You probably have to listen a little bit longer than you want. And then it says also to kind of look at yourself, and you'll have reason for boasting in regard to yourself alone and not in regard to another. Oftentimes, part of what you're doing is is self-righteousness. You know, they're struggling and it's because of their stuff and if they would just get over it and and they could just see it, they would change. Well, you're not any better than that in general. So then that just informs kind of a softness in your words, all right? Now, there are times, let's say, you've had three or four conversations where you've listened well and you've really grieved. And a lot of times, people who are really stuck in their hard-heartedness and are demanding an answer, just empathizing with them oftentimes won't be enough. And you may have to just help them like really say, what you're saying seems really hard to me. I think there's a lot of sadness. Because they'll want to nurture their anger. They won't want to go to sadness because it's vulnerable. So you might have to really help them feel the anguish, the sorrow of what's difficult because it's probably not going to change quickly anyway. All right, No marriage changes quickly anyway. And so if they're in real difficulty, it isn't going to change quickly. So you help them do that. And then let's say they've sorrowed, they've really kind of are at a place where they need truth. You still may have to say things that they don't want to hear. I just, I want you to try to believe, and, and I've kind of practiced my way into this, that you can say hard things to people in ways where they want to hear it. You really can. We think speaking truth to one another in love is some angry, red-faced fundamentalist, you know, thumping a Bible on us. A lot of times it's a really a kind thing. I mean, the, the, I Skype with a friend who's a counselor in Atlanta every other week, and he will kind of laugh at me and say things like, you're just so neurotic. And he just says it like that. And like, it's just so helpful to me 
for him to be honest that way. So, all right. I hope that helps a little bit. Anybody else? Any? We got a couple minutes. How, um, if if you have a friend whose husband has been going to a Christian counselor and he has left counseling more justified in wanting to get a divorce, how can you encourage him to see a different Christian counselor? Yeah. <laughs> well, let me say. <laughs> Let me say this. Uh, what I said earlier, we may not oftentimes can't overcome, override someone's selfishness. Um, in that situation, like if, if it's one spouse who seems to be more caught in their hard-heartedness, oftentimes the thing you can do best is empower that other spouse to make this spouse's life more difficult. And, and that, may not, that may not help. Um, Yeah, I mean, she, yeah, yeah, but it, uh, yes, I mean, I could, you could suggest that, but, and then it just depends. If, if they would go, I was assuming they wouldn't go together, if they would go together, like oftentimes a counselor, like one of the reasons I like marital counseling more than individual counseling is I don't naturally want to be hard on people, but when I see you be mean to your spouse, I know I need to be hard on you, okay, or vice versa. So it, it would be helpful if they went together, maybe. I can't assure that because, again, some people can be stuck in a direction that they're not going to turn from. Yeah. So there are times when you say, I can't help you anymore, you know, as a counselor. I mean, is that, is that might be what happens? You just say, there's nothing else I can help you with here. Yeah. Well, oftentimes, if, if that's the case, it may more be that there's one or the other's not engaging. So it's a little bit of both. Like, I can't help you and I can't help you because there needs to be a different level of engagement here to move towards something better. Um, it can be really, I mean, as you all know, it can be really hard because there are some cases where divorce is a good thing for a spouse, and I hate to say that, but that can be true. As much as leaning in and really working through difficult can be a really hard thing over a long period of time that people need to do, and it's hard to know oftentimes and discern what to do. Yeah. But a counselor in general has never helped anyone who didn't want to be helped. And oftentimes, people hear from a counselor what they want to hear, in general. And there are bad counselors, too. I mean, all of the above in a fallen world, all right? So. They tell what they want to tell, too. Say again? They say what they want to say, too. You yeah. Know, you know, might not always get the full story. Right, right. That's why it's oftentimes helpful to have both the husband and wife, because you see more what's going on there. But there can be really times when it's helpful that a person goes individually. It, there's a variety on how to work it out. Well, let me say, if the question is, can you see a couple together and separate? In general, it's best for a couple to be together. The only time it's really good for them to be separate if a couple is a little bit more mature and they're not going to use the counselor against one another. Okay? Then sometimes they can just talk a little freely and, and make some good movement towards their spouse. But oftentimes, the more fleshly or divided or selfish a couple is, they're going to use whatever you say to their benefit if you meet with them individually. So in those cases, it's not wise at all. Yeah. All right. All right, let me pray for us and we'll stop. All right. Lord, thank you um, for your kindness. And Lord, thank you for the gift of marriage. Lord, I just pray in Jesus' name that you would help us, whether it's in our own marriages or marriages in our family or with our friends. Lord, that we would honor the gift of marriage um, with more of your heart and more of your love. Father, help us to do that with wisdom and strength. 
We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.